is really just such a beautiful thing, and uh, it's 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 beautiful and it's it's also sobering. And to all of us who um, have the privilege of welcoming welcoming new members into our church family, we now have a tremendous responsibility um, to love them well, to serve them well, to encourage them in their faith well, to care for them well, and uh, to exhort them well, and counsel them well, and shepherd them well, and. Uh, um, and so I know many of you take that responsibility very seriously in this church, and I'm really thankful for that. And so it's a joy to see God add to our number. And also, you feel the weight of it a little bit, too, you know? You feel the weight of it a, li- a little bit, too, because it's such a wonderful thing and such an important thing in the life of the church as we pursue Christ for his glory until we get there. You know? I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. You would think with only, you know, five or six chapters of Luke left, it might not be that long before we finish this. Luke chapter 18, let's uh, just read the text first. We'll be in verses 31 to 34. This is the word of the Lord. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Let's pray. Well, Father, our good Father, we have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and we give you glory. Father, we are your redeemed merely by your great grace of sending the Lord Jesus to be our Savior. Lord Jesus, You are the Lord of all. What an incredible thing that this moment in history recorded in Scripture happened and is true and came to pass just as You said that You were the suffering servant for the sake of Your people. Lord Jesus, You so willingly gave up Your life for sinners like us. And we thank You. And we pray that the love that You have shown us would never be lost on us. It would never get second place to other issues and truths in Scripture, but um, Your work on the cross, the atonement, saving a people for Yourself by Your shed blood on that tree, that this would always be central as it is in Your Word. 
and as it is in your plan for history. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that really is the essence of the message. And I, and I want to say to our church, you know, we've covered a lot of stuff in 10 years in Scripture. We've covered a lot of truths in Scripture. Um, we've dealt with Scripture, the thinking scripturally, biblically, thinking with a Christian mind about a lot of things and a, and a lot of topics in life um, over almost 10 years together. And um, one of the things that is uh, so important is that um, at times we just revisit the most important and the most foundational and the most central truths of the Christian faith is just a constant diet of the life of our church. And one of the things that's important is that because you have heard Scripture applied to so many different things, and it has helped many of you in your maturity and how to think in God's world, His thoughts after Him, um, that uh, even sermons can become a thing where we forget that we're not the only ones hearing a sermon in the church. We think, what we think is, when we hear a sermon, we think that, you know, every single week there has to be something just for me. Um, but what we oftentimes forget is there's a, whole, there's a whole church hearing the Word of God. You know, now, there should be something for you when you hear the Word of God. But what I mean by it is, um, sometimes we think that preaching just becomes self-centered to us and not um, church-centered. That there's other people here. And you know when there's other people here, there's differing levels of maturity. There's differing levels of familiarity with Scripture. There's different levels of, of maturity in Christ's truth and an obedience to God's ways. And, and, um, and sometimes, you know, more than many of you uh, and many of us would like to think, sometimes we need a lot more milk in the church just because it's necessary for the nurturing of the flock. Um, and I want to warn you against thinking that if a sermon doesn't just have some great meat all the time for me to just have to, that somehow that's bad. That's self-centered thinking about hearing preaching. Your preaching is to a church. It's to, all of, it's to a flock. And, and some of you who are more mature, some of the ways that your humility actually can grow and your love for the church can grow is your patience, even in hearing preaching, that isn't, you know, overly meat-oriented at times in order to see the whole flock nurtured. Because sometimes the flock needs milk. And, um, and that's not to say anything bad about the flock needing milk. It's just, um, you know, that's what an infant needs. An infant needs milk. And so it's good for there to be some milk. And so um, when we come to this passage... In Luke, you know, just think about this. Think about what our solar system would be like if um, all of a sudden the sun was removed from the center of it. Think about the nature of what would happen. All of the planets revolve around the gravitational pull of the sun. The sun is absolutely central. Um, and God has put the sun there in its place, in the center place, around the solar system where all the planets, and without the sun, there, there, would be absolute, there wouldn't even be a solar system. There wouldn't be any solar system. And, and I want you to think about 
um, the cross of Christ like that. I want you to think about that when you think about this passage of Scripture here where Jesus is predicting this is the third time in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a good while since we covered the other two because they're all the way back in Luke chapter 9. Probably like six years ago or something. I don't know. But it's been a good while. Um, But this is the third time where Jesus is prophesying about his own suffering. He's saying, this is going to happen to me. And um, at this point, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem with the disciples, and he knows exactly what's coming when he gets to Jerusalem. And um, the point being here, this cross that Jesus is going to bear, this is everything that is central to all of history. As the sun is central to the solar system, Jesus Christ and his, his cross and his resurrection are central to the whole story of Scripture, and they're central to the whole, it's central to the whole uh, of human history. And so central is it that um, before the cross of Christ, everything in the Old Testament is like a big arrow pointing to the suffering of Christ and uh, to life beyond the grave for him and us, and everything post the cross and resurrection of Christ in Scripture in the New Testament is really pointing back and giving explanation to this absolutely central work of Jesus Christ and Him dying on the cross in the place of sinners. And if you remove, if you remove what Jesus is saying is going to happen to Him here, you absolutely have nothing that is Christian at all anymore in any way, shape, or form in in a greater way than you would have no solar system if the sun was removed from the center of the revolving planets. You have absolutely nothing Christian left. Absolutely nothing Christian left. And I would say, you don't have much left of who God is if you don't have anything left. And so I want to encourage us to be reminded of the centrality of the cross of Christ. And in doing so, I want to back up for a minute and just give the big picture storyline of Scripture. Very big picture storyline of Scripture. And if you're new to studying the Bible, the Bible is a story. It's a story of the history of the world as God has purposed it, recorded for us in Scripture. And I would just tell you, the Bible is... is more accurate in its detail than any other historical book. It's a better witness to reality than anything that's ever been written. It's because God's written it. God's written it through the hands of men. And He has told us about Himself and His ways. And and the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything starts right there. God always was. He is the everlasting God, Scripture tells us. He is eternal. He had no beginning. He had no need of being created. He has existed for all time and um, beyond all time. And in His wise and sovereign and good and gracious plan, He made the world. Genesis 1 tells us of Him creating the world and Him creating man and woman in His own image and Him desiring to fill the earth with people who would reflect His character and nature and glory. Representatives of who He is and what He's like. 
the world he made in a um, perfect place. A perfect place that was capable of temptation and capable of sin. And we know that the world fell into sin because of Adam's rebellion. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of Adam's rebellion against God. Eve was deceived, Adam watched, and the principal sin was that God is not being kind to me and good to me, and I know what's better than God does, and I want to be um, wise like God is, and I'm going to pursue my own way in life. That's the essence of the human heart now, ever since that fall into choosing my way instead of submission and delight in who God is, and the whole world falls into sin. And so you ask, why is the world such a mess? Because it's cursed by sin. Why is the world such a mess? Because it's full of sinners. Why is the world such a mess? Because man is living in rebellion against God. That's why the world's such a mess. Right? And everywhere you look, if you know anyone at all, and probably if you know your family at all, you look and you see, why is it's, it's all such a heartbreaking mess. Because man is living in rebellion against God. And God tells us the way of a transgressor is hard. Why are so many people's lives hard? Because the way of a transgressor is hard. You don't live in rebellion against God and everything just goes well all the time. And He is Creator. And as Creator, He has the right and authority as King over the universe to dictate His law. And when He dictates His law, He expects obedience and submission to it. But it's not just that He expects obedience and submission to it. When He dictates His law, what He's telling us is, this is actually how I created you to live. He's instructing us in how He created life in the world to be lived. And for it to be good. And for it to be blessed. And we say, no. Even though it's good. And even though we would be blessed if we followed. We don't think you're wise. We don't think your law is good. We think our law is good. We think what we think is wise. We are smarter than you. That's the essence of humanity. And so everything's a mess. And God could have judged us justly for our rebellion against Him because He is the judge of all the earth. He has all rights to judge us. He has all rights to cast us off forever for our rebellion against Him, for our pursuit of our own selves. But God is gracious and merciful. And He didn't cast us off forever. And you fast forward now through a lot of Old Testament history where um, God's promising that He's going to send a Messiah. And He's promising that He's going to send a Savior into the world, the Christ. And He's telling us through the whole Old Testament, the whole book of Leviticus is prophecy to us that there would need to be a sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world. Because animals weren't cutting it. Animals only existed for a time so that when the Christ would come, we would understand the need of a penalty to be paid. And so, um, 
the whole Old Testament, the suffering servant passages in Isaiah telling us that there's going to be a servant who's going to have to suffer. And then you come to the New Testament where Jesus actually arrives on the scene, the Messiah, the Christ, and not just any man, but God the Son. God the Son taking on human form. And what Luke is recording here is the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ for us. A little bit, all the way back to the beginning, um, uh, about his, the narrative, maybe for the first couple chapters, of when Jesus was being born, prophesied to be born, being born, and then as an infant. In fact, all the way back to the beginning of Luke, we learn of Jesus from Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, even in Jesus' infant, uh, in his, the narrative is an infant, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Even in um, Jesus' birth narrative, He enters the world with one purpose, and that is to go to a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And so when we come to the third passion prediction, we say the word passion at times and we mean um, Jesus' death on the cross and His suffering that preceded that and His passion for His obedience to His Father, His passion for His people whom He would save by dying on that cross. And we come to this passion prediction and what, what should be obvious to the disciples is that everything is happening in history and they are actually right there in the middle of it just as um, God had been telling them for a long time that the Christ would suffer and to them it is of no profit. It is of no profit. They don't understand these things. They don't have a mind for this. Well, why, why would they not have the ability to hear what Jesus is saying? Well, the disciples are just like you. And what you do is you think something should be a certain way. It's not God's way, but you think it is. And so you're deceived. Right? You think your marriage should be like this certain way. It's not the way God actually thinks it's going to be. It's just the way you think it should be. 
Right? And so then truths from Scripture come to you, but they don't actually land anywhere. They actually come and they, they land with no profit. And so the disciples are just like that because the disciples have an idea about who the Christ should be. And they think Jesus is the Messiah who, as they go to Jerusalem, is going to finally overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom of David uh, forever and and restore it to all of its glory. And because they thought that, because that was their idea of who the Christ had to be, Jesus is telling them, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. That thought from the Messiah, from the Christ, whom they believed, who they recognized as God the Son, who they recognized as the Messiah, promised um, by the prophets to be walking among them. They recognized Him. But because they thought he was going to come and merely triumph, hearing Jesus actually tell the truth about what the Scripture has been telling, that he must suffer, absolutely just doesn't compute. It just doesn't compute unless we disdain the the disciples' stupidity. This is exactly the way we are. So many truths from Scripture that we've heard and heard, and they have no profit. But apart from this work of Christ, of suffering, there is nothing Christian. There is nothing Christian. And what we're going to see as we continue in Luke is everything's going to happen exactly as Jesus said it would happen to him. He he will be mocked. He will be mocked. We, I mean, the, the, the terms of suffering here that pile up, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. What does that mean? He will be mocked. You will be shamefully treated and spit upon. If you were to flip forward a few pages, you would see those exact things taking place. And after flogging him, you would see that taking place too, just as Jesus said it would, within just a few days now, historically. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, He will rise. Now, Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen to Him in regards to His suffering. 
so that when it actually happens, the disciples don't despair. They don't despair because what's happening is exactly what he said was happening which would be an additional strength to their heart to actually have faith that not just his suffering would be true, but that on the third day, he would rise. And so, when they actually experience Jesus' suffering, he guards them from the temptation to overly despair and to hopelessness and complete confusion because at that point, they will understand this is exactly what Jesus said. That's the hope. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. You know, we oftentimes give the disciples a bad rap about Saturday, like they were completely clueless about the resurrection. I don't know if they were completely clueless about the resurrection. I mean, these truths, watching Jesus suffering at some point, had to stir a little bit to think there had to be more, even if it wasn't all that clear to them. There had to be more than what had happened on Friday. Because Jesus had told them on the third day He will rise. Surely at least the thought like entered their minds somewhere that there was a possibility of life beyond what, had ha- of what, uh, beyond what had happened. And that maybe there wasn't just confusion and just despair on Saturday um, because Jesus had given them the promise He would rise so that they could hold on to hope. And hope would be the actual strength after watching Jesus be completely killed. I'm really looking forward to the last five or six chapters of Luke. Six chapters, I guess. Because I'm really looking forward to spending time in the heart of the Gospel. The heart of Christ and His work his last week, his last days, what he thought was most important to communicate to the disciples before his departure, seeing what happens to him and what this means about who he is and his great love for sinners. For God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I hope it stirs our affections for Christ. You know, um, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus' admonishment of them was what? That they had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten their first love. And I just hope by sitting in the love of Christ for a while that we have a Savior who was mocked and betrayed and delivered over to the Gentiles and spit upon and flogged. All of those terms are um, given to us to to increase our understanding of the nature of the love of Christ to the people whom He would save. And I know we often make much of Jesus' greatest suffering was not His physical suffering. It it was His spiritual suffering. And that is absolutely true. But that's abstract to us a bit to get our mind around. And so in order for us to help get our mind around it, Jesus is betrayed and delivered over to the Gentiles. 
and Jesus is mocked by real people and real soldiers and real rulers and kings and emperors. He's spit upon and abased. He's shamefully treated. You know, they dress him in a purple robes and they, and, and they mock him. He's treated shamefully. And he is flogged. And they kill him on a cross where they drove real nails through his hands and feet and hung him there until he suffocated and died. He gave up his life. And you just think to yourself, how great must be my sin. And how wicked must be my own heart. And how pitiful must I be. That God the Son had to suffer like this. To pay the penalty for me. And you just think. How, how great must the offense. To God be. Of all humanity. Rebelling against him. The perfect and wise creator making them out of the overflow of his love. How offensive must it be that um, they would choose their own way in rebellion? That they would become a world where everyone does what's right in his own eyes and gives no regard to God whatsoever, has no fear of him, and plunges headlong into sin and destruction that destroys lives and people. And makes a mockery of his glory. And then you think to yourself. How merciful must he be. That he planned an eternity past. That he would send the son his dearly loved, his beloved son. God the Father loves his son. That he would send his son. To pay a penalty that you and I could never pay for the offenses that we have committed and for the debt that we owe for our offenses. For the real guilt that we have before the law of God. How gracious and compassionate and merciful must he be to sinners. 
if he would, that he would actually do this. That he would actually do this. And that is exactly what we see in the passion of our Lord. He actually did this. Just as he said, and just had, as God had long promised. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And remember, Son of Man is used often in a context where it's right next to Jesus' suffering. And the reason it's like that is because the Son of Man recalls the Son of Man who's present before the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel who um, has a position of authority and rule. And here he is, the one who has all authority, the one who ought to be regarded as the great king of all the universe. It is written about the Son of Man by the prophets uh, will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be balked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Now note that, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now we're going to see the word Gentile just means everyone in the world who's not Jewish, who's not an Israelite. Okay? And so um, we'll see Jesus get turned over to Rome. And uh, ultimately, I mean, he goes and sees Herod, and he's engaged with Pilate, and um, all of these things. And in his earlier passion prediction, right, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees will have him killed. But he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. And I think what's really important about that is that this calls to mind um, that the guilt for Christ's death is not just the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees. The guilt for Christ's death is not just Herod's, and the guilt for Christ's death is not just Pilate's, Gentiles, all the people of the earth become represented here. That all are guilty for the death of Christ. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, right? That no one no one in this room and no one anywhere can make the claim that they do not bear guilt for the death of Jesus Christ. You can't go into any nation or place on this globe. You can't find some you know, distant tribe who we think because they're disconnected, they're innocent. All of humanity is guilty of the death of Christ, and this death he died for the Gentiles. He killed him. I want to make a couple points about the centrality of this work of Christ. Without the cross, Christianity has no difference to every other world religion. And what we have today in places called churches everywhere who don't actually really embrace that Jesus died on a cross where he bore the wrath of God and where he paid the fullness of sin's penalty, the wrath of God in full on that tree in the place of sinners like you and me. 
What do you have left in churches that actually reject those truths of Scripture? We have places. You don't have places of worship anymore. You don't have gatherings of Christians anymore. You have something that has a Christianized veil that doesn't even have the heart of Christianity at all in it. It's nothing different than every other world religion. Because in places like that, all you have, all you have is people trying to be decent human beings. And I will tell you, they know they're decent human beings. All you have in places like that are a cause to jump on. To gather together to have a a cause to trumpet. You have no salvation. You have no repentance. You have no faith that actually saves anyone because you don't have a Savior who saves anyone. And so what you end up with is a bunch of people trying to do the best they can hoping that will make God happy in the end. And that's what every single world religion is. And frankly, it's awful. It's awful in its very treatment of the people who are gathering together in a place they think is a church. Because all it is is idolatry. I make God in my own image. Who needs a cross? I would write that out of the story. If I, was, if I was God, I would write that out of the story. And then God would be like this. That's idolatry. And idols treat you terribly. Idols are tyrants. They're tyrants because when will you ever know if your being good is good enough? When will you ever know if your being good is good enough? The beauty of the Gospel is I'm a wicked sinner, but I have an amazing Savior who showed mercy to me. I couldn't be good enough. He was good enough. My trust is entirely in Him. And that burden of the weight of guilt and fear He carries away. But see, without a cross... It's just like every other world religion. Without the cross, I I could have said it this way too, without the cross, Christianity is really just lost to do your best kind of moralism. And hope that you're good enough in the end. Without any answer to the question, why would I and why should I? And without the cross, Jesus can't be known for who He is. Without the cross, Jesus can't be known for who He is. Remember this always. In a lot of circles like ours, oftentimes what will be said is you just have to know God as He is. You have to know God for who God is. But never forget this, because oftentimes this is lost when people say that. God makes Himself known through His works. We don't just study him as an abstract character in the sky and just kind of think about big truths. 
he makes himself known by his works. It's not unlike we would say, you know, um, uh, a teacher is known by his fruit, what he produces. Right? God is known by his works. He reveals himself through his works. What he is like is not just, I mean, he is like he is, but he makes himself known to us by his works. And so we would not know who God is apart from the cross of Christ. What if God just left us in the dark about his wrath against sin? And yet we see that God hates sin on the cross. Because he slayed his son there. Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. And at the same time, we see God's love for sinners like you and me because He endured the cross. In the incredible majesty and wonder of the cross, the wrath of God against sin and the love of God for sinners and the way they're revealed to meet there at that cross and teach us about who our God is would not be known. Of course, ultimately, there is absolutely no salvation without this cross. But because Jesus came and did exactly what he said he was going to do. Church, we have a Savior. Salvation has come to the ends of the earth. God has made a people for himself. We are His church. By the grace of God, we are His church. Walking by faith in Jesus. Right? A light of revelation has come to the Gentiles. In this section of Luke's Gospel, we're going to hear Occasionally, the phrase, and followed him, or Jesus say, and follow me. And one of the things you have to embrace as a Christian is you have to embrace that you're going to bear the same kinds of crosses. And what this should do for you See, this, this should have all kinds of applications for you. You're going to suffer at the hands of the world, okay? That's the obvious one that we all kind of embrace and understand to a certain degree. You know, if we do not deny Jesus in his words, you know, we will be mocked. We may eventually be killed. But you have to get rid of your idealism about this life. 
you have to get rid of your idealism. That life is supposed to just be like this big, beautiful picture without pain and suffering and difficulty and heartache and hurt. And you have to stop thinking about your marriage that way. And young ladies, do not go into marriage thinking that's what marriage is. You will have to bear a cross in marriage if you want to have a good marriage. You will have to deny yourself in marriage in order to have a good marriage. You may have to even experience being shamefully treated if you would ever have a good marriage. But in all these things, you take heart because your Savior was delivered over to the Gentiles. He was mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they killed him. And he rose on the third day and he says to you, he says to you, and if he predicted his cross exactly in the detail it would happen, just according, according to all the Old Testament prophecies, we're talking hundreds of years, thousands of years of history, all pointing to this moment. When he says to you, after raising from the dead, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, then guess what? He is with you always, even to the end of the age. So you have the joy and freedom to just obey him. To have faith in what he says and obey him. You, husband, you just obey him. How do I handle this? Obey God. How do you, wife, how do you handle this? Just obey God. Just obey God. I mean, what what else would you need from him to see? What else would you need to see in him? What, What else must he be like for you to not see the goodness of his nature and his mercy towards you? To just say, I'm just going to obey God. The thing that makes for a godly marriage and a good marriage is two people just obeying God. That's what it is. And they're not always even obeying God together. They're just obeying God for their responsibility. A wife is obeying God. A husband is obeying God. So much of the focus in marriage becomes about each other. Obey God and bear whatever crosses are required for you to bear in your obedience to Him. And He's a good Savior. And you know this. You know this. He's a good Savior. 
and no one else is worth your obedience like he is. Joel, you probably can't sing, can you? Do we have the song in there? Can we just pull the lyrics up for me? I might just want to read the lyrics. I don't know. We used to sing this um, song years ago. and Yeah, let's sing it. Why don't you stand with me as we sing this song in closing?